Welcome to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Oh, you know, we're back to give the people what they want because, you know, training runners, training endurance athletes is way, way, way more detailed than just writing workouts and logging miles. And that's what this podcast today is all about. What are you talking about, man? I just pull out my my training calculator and plug some stuff in. It spits some workouts in, and then I just sit back and uh, watch the goods come in. Isn't that isn't that how it works? Oh, I wish, man. My kingdom for that it was that easy. Yeah, we all wish it was. And you know, at certain points of our career, I feel like we all thought it was that way because our education or coaching knowledge is so heavily biased towards um, the physiology workout design that that's where most of us come from that perspective. And that is actually one reason, one of many, why John and I said, you know, many years ago, we always said, you know what, we've been to dozens of dozens of coaching clinics, conferences, educations, all that stuff. There's some good stuff there. There's bad stuff, but we're going to change the paradigm. We're going to make it a holistic coaching approach. And that's when we develop the scholar program, essentially to pass on information and develop athletes and coaches in a way that we thought gave them all the tools, not just the tools we wanted to promote or not just the tools that we were, were biased towards. You know, it's a seductively simple approach, right? And that's the uh, reality is you get kind of word in, so to speak, by like, oh, if I just get this right, everything else work out. But I'm here to tell you, after hopping back in the Division One coaching saddle this summer and this fall, it's just stark reminder of how much it is about, you know, managing and working and developing the human, the person along concurrently with the physical body you know and that's i think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice in our community by thinking like if i just develop the physical capacity everything else will take care of itself exactly so if you want to learn more about how to holistically coach check out the scholar program and listen to this podcast right now because what (laughs) we're going to talk about is peak when it counts developing mental toughness and really dive into how to develop that athlete holistically um, so that they can perform when it matters most. Yeah, it's, you know, performance is so hard, right? And performance readiness is so hard. And I take, it, it, I take a lot of personally um, inspiration from musicians and thespians who get ready for plays and actors because by studying them, you start to see like what kind of rehearsal really looks like when you're trying to get ready for a live performance where there is no timeouts and very much a symphony or a play is a lot like race day, right? You practice and practice and practice, and then you get ready for the big event, you do it, and then it's over. It is, you know, and I'm glad you brought this up because I think too often what happens in athletics, we get stuck in our own siloed world. But if we venture out and we look at what other artists and performers are doing it gives us some some great insight and actually way back in the day when uh wrote peak performance i remember one of the most insightful interviews we had was with a drummer named uh matt billingsley who mm. just happens to be taylor swift's drummer and listening to his stories we wrote about him in the book but listening to his stories on like what it takes to get ready to perform both for him and others um within you know, that, that context is, is astonishing. And it just, that's when the light bulb went off for me. I'm like, Oh, this is athletic performance. This is what we do. And it was interesting talking to Matt because he actually came from a background of, he was a, essentially a personal trainer, strength coach to put him to, to fund the dream of drumming for a while. So he brought a lot between both, uh, both of those, uh, you know, different silo things. But I think as athletes, we have a lot to learn from our our brethren in the arts because what are they doing? They're preparing to perform on the biggest stage at the right time. <laughs> um, 
in a way that is incredibly pressure inducing because literally all lies are on you. And, you know, there's so many different takeaways we can we can go from there. Yeah, I, I really resonate with the concept between practice and rehearsal, right? And there's different types of rehearsal that we have available to us um, in the kind of onstage performance uh, arena. There's like the dress rehearsal, there's kind of like the run-through rehearsal, right? And we can take uh, a lot of learning from that and apply it to sport and especially uh racing at the um for distance runners and endurance athletes as some meets are should be preparatory and rehearsal in nature where you're specifically working in the context of that race day environment on certain elements but you're not trying to put the whole thing together you're not trying to make it like this amazing race and have every race be a proven ground for fitness a proven ground for progression as sometimes we can fall into that trap in a season Exactly. It reminds me of other artists like comedians who, if you look at, again, even world-class comedians like Chris Rock and others, what do they do? They go to small clubs, comedy clubs, Mm -hmm. and like test things out and work on things and essentially use those as rehearsals and sometimes like do jokes that absolutely bomb, Mm -hmm. right? in those small avenues so that when they get on the big stage in the big event or the big special that's recorded, they are prepared and know what they're doing. Right. And, and I think that that is often something that we miss in both practice, you know, and competition in the sense that, you know, a in practice, we need to have not only often a physiological, you know, goal and stuff, but also a mental goal of like, what are we trying to develop? And then during competition, we have to understand, is this, is this, we're in the HBO special or is this the, the comedy shop down the street in the middle of nowhere, you know, middle of nowhere, America, where we're just trying to test things out and prepare for that next step. And I think, as you mentioned there, John, too often we don't distinguish and delineate things. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, We spend too much time trying to kind of validate our work at meets and competitions instead of developing and working on things. And I'm going to give an example. So uh, one of my wife's cousin is a cross country runner in high school, and we went to watch uh, one of his meets and I was talking with him and some of the other athletes afterwards, and they were talking as, you know, you know, as if every meet they needed to PR or get bet or like, you know, improve in some parameter. Um, and I just had this conversation where I just kind of reframed it. I said, yeah, yeah, that's great. But like, what, what meets count? And they're like, oh, the district, regional, state meet, et cetera. And I said, okay, now think about it. Like, how are you preparing for that? And one of the athletes got it right away and said, he said, yeah, I need to practice some meets. I need to go out over my head because I remember the state meet like always goes out much crazier than every other race. Mm-hmm. So I need to practice that, even if that means like I blow up in this this small little meet because because I need to see where I'm at and to try that so that I've I've been in that place. And to use your terms, like rehearse. And I love that. And I love that 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 athlete who just caught that caught on to that because. What you're doing is you're saying, hey, I don't need not every race needs to be a validator. Not even every race needs to be like, I'm going to try and run this to perfection to PR or or what have you. We need to try different things to rehearse different styles to prepare us for the big crucible, that HBO special when we're on 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 TV, which could be the district meet for you. It could be the state meet. It could be the NCAA championships. But when Mm -hmm. you you switch that mindset what it does is a it takes a little bit of the pressure off meets and b it changes the goal right the goal becomes how do i prepare and in that i think takes pressure off the big meet because when you can reflect and you look back and you say guess what i'm prepared because at this meet i practice going out really hard so i know what it feels like and i've done the training and I'm I'm ready to handle this. At this meet over here, like I practiced the tactics of sitting in the pack of like of like just 
you know, being in, involved and like surrounded by people and getting comfortable being surrounded by tons of people like will happen at the state meet or the NCAA championship. You try different things to expand your psychological or mental repertoire so that, you know, in the definition of tough, toughness, you don't freak out. You don't lose your cool whenever that happens at the crucible, the test, the meet that actually matters. Yeah, you gotta zoom out and really look at what you're doing, right? And in this classic setting, whether you're at the high school or collegiate environment, or even at the, you know, professional setting, there's essentially only three types of meets. That's it, right? On track and field and cross country, three, and even in marathoning to a certain degree, right? One, the first type is the championship meet, the meet that all that matters is place. They don't give out gold medals at the Olympics for world records. They give out gold medals for the first person across the line. That's the same at the conference level meet, the NCAA championships, the state championships, you name it. That's all that matters at those meets. Who gets to the finish line first? The second type of meet, right, is a qualification meet. So you're qualifying to get to that championship meet where only place matters. And say regionals is an example, um, NXR, right, for uh, Nike Cross National is an example. All that matters is you get the qualification, you meet the qualification standard to advance to that championship meet. Could be a marathon that's getting you ready for the Olympic trials. But even the Olympic trials in and of itself is this hybrid of a qualification meet and a championship meet as one, right? So it's a weird, that's, what, that's a weird dynamic. It catches people off guard. And then finally, the third meet, the third type of meet is just essentially rehearsal. That's it. That's all you're doing. You're just rehearsing. You're working on something specific. A lot of times we forget that that third meet is the majority and bulk of the competitions a track and field distance running athlete is going to have in front of them. And we treat everyone like this hybrid of the Olympic trials, this qualification slash championship meet where both place and time have this disproportion import and it's not the case at all like coming back in the ncaa world talking to my student athletes at portland state i said look there's really only a handful of meets in the calendar year that matter one is going to be the conference meet right that's a championship meet so that's one two three indoor outdoor cross okay three meets there that matter then ncaa championships it's another championship meet that's another three meets six meets that matter right now you have Regional championships for track and cross. Those are qualification meets to get to the highest level. So now we have eight meets that matter. Then you have meets that qualify you to regional track or NCAA indoor. So that's two more meets. Ten meets. Ten meets actually matter in the NCAA scholastic competitive counter. Ten. And everything else is really essentially rehearsal, right? Everything else is essentially working on things to put you in a position to get that qualification mark or to compete and get across the finish line first or throw the furthest, um, you know, or the, record the furthest mark on the day. So when we decontextualize like that, it starts to become super duper simple. And I mean, I, you know, am a chef who eats my own cooking. You can go on to the Portland State GoVikes.com website right now, and it says another rehearsal meet for the cross-country team uh, coming up actually today, right? And it's like, because... We're working on specific elements of our competitive plan, and we're not worried about the outcome. We're not worried about this. We want to really, really, in a competitive crucible, work on these elements only and get better in real time and get feedback on where we are related to the plan versus what we execute, and then use that in training moving forward in the coming weeks to better us for the cross-country championship, uh, conference championship meet. And we see this at the highest levels, right? And mm -hmm. I not, not to pick on them, but I think, um, I, I think if you look at uh, Jakob Ingebrigtsen, he's got a little bit of the the El Garouge from the early from the late '90s, early 2000s, mm. which means he's prepared really <laughs> well for one type of meet, which is the the see how fast you can meet right mm -hmm. it's the, yeah. the time trial competition as you outlined there he's prepared really well for that and that that's obvious but what he's not quite as pre 
prepared for, I think, is the championship style. And at least right now, because like the last two championships, he's got beat trying to do the same thing, essentially the same strategy. And others have identified how to take it on and have have beaten him, even though that like arguably, probably inarguably, like he's the fitter if we, athlete, if we just lined everybody up and raced, you know, with a rabbit all the way around, like Ingerbritson would win nine, you know, eight times out of 10 or a majority. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think it's it's the same thing that happened with El Garouge, right? He was setting all these world records, et cetera, um, but would struggle at the Olympic Games for various reasons. I remember for a while there was one game and a couple worlds uh, where he would have a teammate essentially rabbit people out, right? Because he knew if I could keep it fast enough, I could do it. And it wasn't until... He kind of worked on his, uh, you know, his tactics a little bit and his, his changed his strengths a little bit um, by switching to try and run the 5K. I remember in 2003 World Championships, he ran the 5K, lost to Kipchoge, um, but learned, updated, and like figured out how to compete and race in that championship style um, meet a little bit better and not just rely on being the fittest of the fit and the the reason i kind of outline that is it occurs at every level like we can get really good at doing one style of race but like struggle and others the classic example is is uh perhaps the best example is ron clark mm-hmm. right the master of the let's see how fast we could run and back then not as many rabbits would just kind of do it on his uh, on his own or with limited rabbits, et cetera, um, but would dominate in those time trial races, but never could win the goal, you know, even though he was by far the fittest. And a little of that is the abilities that we bring to play, but part of that is like the rehearsal, the using meets to prepare so that we can take on this other kind of racing. Right. right, you don't want to do anything new on the on the the perform as I call the performance or high performance meet. Right, you wouldn't want to do anything new when you went out on stage and you know played your set in front of thousands and thousands of people, or when it was actually like, hey, here's the play for everyone to come sit and watch. Same thing applies when we compete. Right, a lot of times we ask athletes to do something brand new in a championship meet because you know, the conditions are, are really different, right? So how many times does a championship meet come down to being, say, outdoor track, very hot, humid, windy, you know, externally adverse conditions, and it comes down to a final sprint, right? Where it's like, we fart around, we jog around, and then it's like, okay, who can sprint the fastest? Sometimes we forget, we're trying to get people, you know, um, to that meet, that we're trying to get all this fitness and we get these time trials and get these marks, and then once we get to that meet, it's a different skill set to be successful in that arena than it was to actually get there. And that's what makes the game so hard, right? Is you want to be able to, one, first, yes, get to that championship or high performance meet. But then two, understand like once you're there, what physical qualities do I need to have to give me a shot to win the race? And even if you don't coach athletes, you know, who are going to make it to a state championship, an NCAA championship, what have you. It's then as a coach identifying what does quote unquote winning look like for that athlete. And a lot of times we default to winning being, can you execute a certain pace strategy on race day? But we also want to make sure like we are racing against people. So even for the younger high school athlete or developing collegiate athlete, it's making sure they have the tool um, kit and also mindset that they're tough and they can compete and find a race. And that's what I always at the high school level last couple of years would champion to, you know, my freshman boys or freshman girls who, you know, might be brand new to track, might be, hey, we got, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to race. Go look, find a race. And on that last lap, you know, compete like this, compete like that. Because you want to give them the building blocks of saying, all right, I know how to time my kick or make a surge or make a move. So as they develop over the course of time and get fitter, stronger, and advance to higher level meets, that that skill set 
is a, uh, just very well endowed and they're very familiar with it versus let's train, 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 get fit, 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 fit. And then, uh-oh, I'm at this championship meet and I don't know how to approach this type of race where it's coming down to a last kick because I don't have a kick because we worked all this time on, you know, aerobic, uh, developing aerobic fitness through threshold running, blah, 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 blah. And now we're caught with a demand to do something brand freaking new or unfamiliar and the athlete's not sure how to accomplish that task. You know, I, I remember this, gosh, this was the maybe 2002, 2003. And, um, Tom Telez, legendary sprint coach talked about him a lot. Like we'll have a course on hit on his views in the scholar program coming up soon, if not released by the time you hear this. Um, but I remember him, he loved El Garouche. He loved watching El Garouche. You know, it said mechanically, like, you know, very sound. But he always had one thing. He said, look what happens when he gets in the final 100 meters of the race. He does more of the same. Mm -hmm. And he, he's fit enough that more of the same can help hold people off. But then he'd point to other people I forget off the top of my head. It might have been Legat or reselva or some of the other kickers at that time right and he'd say but look what they do to be able to kick they know how to change gears right sometimes it was like the arm stroke gets it uh, gets wider changes right or their their mechanics change slightly to go into what do you call like sprint mode right they know how to how they would know how to change gears to kick and Elgarouge often, often wouldn't, right? His arms would do the same thing, only a little bit faster, right? When transition. And, and, and like the point he was having here is that kicking is, is yes, some people are going to be better at it and worse, but you can develop that skill just like anything else, right? And you might not have as much of that skill. But you can develop the tools to learn how to tra transition into ability to maximize your kick, mm -hmm. right? Instead of just saying, oh, I don't have a kick. I'm going to just put my head down, do more of the same. And I think that's what you're getting at here is, is we can teach that ability to a degree. And then we can put people in a place where they can rehearse not only physically, terms of mechanical change but also psychologically what it feels like in places and i think this is even more important for developing athletes because often what you see and i'm sure you know we've both worked with high level olympic trials qualifier types what you see is as you move up the chains and even at the high school level you see this as you move up the chains in terms of your performance you start becoming hesitant mm -hmm. you start defaulting to what what feels most comfortable in terms of giving you the best chance to win because you don't want to try anything different because that might mean you get B or that might not mean you might not place as high. And that's kind of a threat, right? You might not want it to go super slow and tactical, or you see this all the time at the NCAA level, you might stop running events that are outside of your comfort zone. Right. Mm -hmm. If you know you can dominate a 5K, you stop running 1500s or you stop running 800s because you're going to get beat. You're going to get quote unquote exposed. But I think what you see, and again, to go to a recent example, for example, from our good friend and uh, fellow oh. on, on coaching guest, Danny Mackey, like if you look at what he did, for example, with Josh Kerr is he's running a half marathon. He's running a 3K. He's running a 5K, a 5K that didn't go quite well early this season. He's doing, he's running an 800 at the British Champs. Even while he's getting close to peaking, he's getting thrown in an 800. UK has some really good 800 runners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One medal, you know? And he's getting thrown in this where it's like, hey, you're, you're, gonna, you're probably going to get beat right even if you have a great race like you're probably going to get beat and you know a fragile coach might think oh this might affect his confidence like he's not winning 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 like going into the championship but danny was wise enough to 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 see the bigger picture of i've got to like 
try these different tools, give them different tools, give them different race exposures so that like when it comes to the championship, he's prepared. So again, it's that idea of dress rehearsal. So I think, you know, for high school coaches, for college coaches, like get out of the mindset. Toughness isn't developed by just making people feel more confident because they quote unquote win or all the time or what have you. Toughness is developed when you give people the tools so that no matter the situation, they understand I've been here, I've rehearsed it. This might, you know, even if it's not optimal, like I've been in the situation and I know how to respond because I've trained my mind and my body to deal with if this race goes out really slow, if this race goes out really fast, if I find myself in last place or first place or anywhere in between, if someone makes a move 800 out instead of 400 out, I've been in these situations where I know not to panic, not to freak out, but what tools to use at my disposal to like respond in a way that puts me in the best position to maximize my abilities. Yeah. When we talk about mental toughness, right? It's as the, the teacher and the coach, you want to nurture people to be able to embrace and look forward to and explore the competitive moment, right? And, you know, we can talk about this all day and night in different contexts, but what happens is a lot of times we become statistics driven, all right? And we start to, you know, kind of create a status hierarchy based on our stats. What's your PR? How many races? What's your kick? Your mileage? Blah, 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 blah. Really all that stuff that we do in training is ideally about getting people ready to take the big swing for the home run on specific days. And there's an inherent degree of risk involved. And we were, as humans, naturally risk adverse. So there's this friction that we have to address. Taking risk, being okay with striking out, but also, too, learning and using that data when we do strike out to inform decision-making and practice moving forward so that we increase our percentage or likelihood that we will hit the home run. Nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is for sure. And that's, I think, why we tend to gravitate towards statistical progressions, because we do want to see improvement as humans. We do want to see advancement. And it's nice to tell a story through kind of concrete objective numbers like, oh, I'm running more miles than I ever run, or my tempo runs faster than it's ever been. But does it translate? Does it translate to the competitive arena and that decision moment when it's like, hey, I got to take a risk and I got to go for it. And the best uh, sport men and women always take the risk. And it's okay if they don't succeed and achieve their uh, desired outcome. And that's the hardest part, I think, sometimes as non-professional athletes and coaches taking cues from professional runners is they have a different metrics about what's um, valuable to them, right? Some people might go and do the time trial circuit or diamond league circuit to get money and bonus awarded to that. Some people's contracts and bonus structure might be very heavily wedded to championship meets, whether they're national or, um, you know, uh, world. Some athletes might get a big appearance fee to go to this diamond league here or there. And that's why they showed up, you know? So it's, it's not as cut and dry as like at the professional level saying, oh, we're just going to go here and have this race. It's like people are trying to make money and get those opportunities. So you're saying, why does Joshua run this meet and not that meet? Well, it's not just purely a, you know, decision-making that's like, here's what I want to do. It's also a financial decision. And if we don't understand that, when we're observing that and taking cues from that, sometimes we can get, um, you know, a little sidetracked by it. It'd be a lot easier, right, if we just move everyone's bonus incentives and structures and it's all kind of public knowledge, like in other sports, but we don't. So we kind of have to, in our sports, it's really weird. We kind of have to look at multiple inputs from multiple levels and like take away um, and create this hodgepodge of, of uh, intel that informs our decision-making for the level and athlete population we're working with. It's the, uh, the Bubka or now the Mondo, right? You, exactly. You maximize the incentive structure, which has set the mm -hmm. world record by, you know, going up one tiny fraction of a inch or a, a millimeter mm -hmm. at at a time so that you can maximize that. So the, 
That's a great point is the incentive structures are, are different, especially at the professional level, um, which often kind of blinds us to some of the decision-making where you, mm -hmm. where you, you know, you gotta, you gotta play the game and the game differs depending on stuff. One other point that I'd, I'd, I'd make on this kind of dress rehearsal idea is actually, I think taken from the military. So if you look at how the military special forces trains, like a lot of times people think like, oh, you know, you just do crazy hard things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's not, it's very intentional on how to do this. And most of what they're doing is not the, hey, let's try and see if you survive, but it's the dress rehearsal idea. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at data, and this is the, I remember looking at this for do hard things and was astonished. If you look at uh, newer military members and even newer special forces members, something like 98% of those who got thrown in a simulated survival situation experienced disassociation, mm -hmm. meaning their brain kind of goes crazy and you start seeing things or the quote unquote fog of war and you start seeing things differently or your memory, you know, remember things differently than they actually occurred or like your perception is altered, like all different things like that. So it's like a normal human thing, even for these people who have quote unquote trained for it. And because of this, what happens is the military, what do they do? They recognize the reality that like we can't exactly el eliminate this, but we can train people to deal with it better and to make the, the and give them the the skills and the abilities to make the decisions that allow them to survive and thrive. Well, how do they do that? They put them through simulations, mm -hmm. right? That are mimicking the what different things that they'll face in the field. But most importantly, is afterwards is not oh. You won at this. It's the after action reviews where it's, where did things go right? Where did things go wrong? How do we improve upon this? Et cetera, et cetera. It's not seen as this threat of, you know, quote unquote failure. It's learning from it mm -hmm. and like growing so that next time we're put in that situation, maybe we don't experience as much disassociation and can make the right decision, et cetera, et cetera. And you do this for a variety of situations that are realistically going to um, entail. And the other thing that I would say before and during the process of going through this, there's all sorts of mental skills development, teaching them the skills for, okay, here are some strategies to handle this. Here are some tools to try in this. You know, it's why the U.S. military is the the nation's largest employer of sports psychologists, <laughs> right? Because they're like, oh man, we got to train this stuff, even though they're sports psychologists, military, whatever have you, like it's still performance. And I think that's where we miss on, on competing and using these rehearsals is we need to, similar to the military, it's like, okay, here's what we're going to face, the different crucibles tests we're going to face in competition. Here's some skills to prepare for him. Like this rehearsal, we need to work on this. Like put yourself in this situation and then review it afterwards. What worked? What didn't work? Mm -hmm. What, you know, what can we change next time and test again? And if we look through that model, again, it, it tells us like there's a simple, straightforward way to give people the skills. And it's not to avoid practicing on them or to treat every competition as like the do or die validation test. Is to treat them for what they are, which is often, again, in that three racing dichotomy you outlined there. It's it's rehearsal for the the test, the the big thing, the meat that matters. Yeah, and the most important thing I think too that we often shun in our success obsessed culture, especially that is, you know, exacerbated by the filtered perfection of social media posts these days is how to deal with setback in a productive, informative, and beneficial manner. Setbacks will happen. Failure will happen. It's not fatal. It's not final, but it's going to manifest. And so as coaches, the most important opportunity we have in kind of the overall education of an athlete and developing mental toughness and mental resiliency and being able to get people to peak when it counts is knowing that setbacks will occur along the path. 
guaranteed. And so being receptive and ready to use any setback in how it manifests, whether it's a competitive setback, uh, kind of a practice or training setback, an injury setback, uh, you know, mental, emotional setback, you know, all the v- different tapestries of setbacks that can present itself as information, as an opportunity to help advance the athlete and the person so that they are resilient and can face setbacks in a healthy way and continue to progress rather than retreat or ignore or hide when those manifest. And I think it's so easy, right, to get caught up in, again, the finite mindset where we're games coaches who are trying to, hey, today we won the game at the, you know, the, the playground and I'm king of the hill today and we got to keep doing it. And it's like, Focus on what matters and then keep reiterating that over and over and over again. And then also remind people that the setbacks are useful educational opportunities. These, you know, after action reviews, hot watch from the military, what have you, these simulations. So that moving forward, they know that they can rebound and be resilient in the face of adversity, in the face of disappointment, in the face of outcomes not being aligned with what they desire. And it's not going to define who they are, but it's going to help them get better moving forward. Yeah, I think that last price is the the key there is like resilience is often tied to how we bounce back mm-hmm. from things. And I often see this in in coaching is that like we can even either create good habits and patterns or bad habits and patterns, meaning if we treat every race as the do or die, like this is to validate your training, this is to validate me as a coach, what happens is we we essentially train or coach like poor resiliency because we're teaching people not to bounce back because they treat that loss as a race as if like they are a loser or they are a failure. It becomes an attack on their central part of like who they are as a person and as an athlete and as a runner. And when we do that, all, all it trains our body to do is what it, what it knows to do in those situations, which is shut down and protect, right? Mm-hmm. But if we frame things, especially these kind of rehearsal competitions as learning moments, as things to review, adjust, grow, as judging them not solely based on the time or the place, but judging them based on your process and execution and the actions you took, what it does is it allows us to be develop that resilience because we realize how to kind of focus on what matters, you know, take, yes, that this might have gone poorly, but then switch and move on from it, right? And I think this is, as coaches, we have that ability. I mean, I remember as a college coach um, with a, a couple athletes who would struggle, like one of the things that often works best was to switch to that kind of rehearsal mindset and in competitions, but by doing so by switching how they're judging success, because so often what happens is we judge success just solely based on the time or mm-hmm. the, the place in competitions where it doesn't really matter. Right. I'm not talking about the championship where that kind of defines place defines. Um, but in these rehearsal competitions, it's, it gets so upset over stuff and it would ingrain this, this poor resilience because they couldn't let go. They couldn't move on. They couldn't like it attack them. Mm. So what do you do? You switch the defining of success. You tell an athlete, Hey, this is going to be successful. This race, like all I want you to focus on is that first mile. If you get out that first mile, like this is a success. You tested yourself. Like you put yourself in a position where you haven't been before. And then we get to see what happens. Or alternatively, if you're working on something like the fast finish, right? Mm -hmm. I want you in this cross country race. I want you to be the, you know, focus on competing that last mile. I want you to pass people. I want you to have the focus on, on being the person that passes everybody the last 800 meters, not the person being passed, right? You switch the kind of, of goal or success rating. On, on that right and yes of course like sometimes it's going to go awry and someone passes a lot of people the first mile because they went out super slow the early ones but that's a learning teaching point that's a hey 
great job on on executing in that last mile. Now we've got to focus on bringing it together, right? Bringing that competitiveness that you developed over that last part with putting yourself in position to utilize that to maximize it in the first half, mm-hmm. right? And, and you bring the pieces of the performance together in that way, and it often lightens the the load or switch switches that that judgment factor of success so that you can develop that resilience. Right. And as a coach, like you can't predict the specificities in the competitive moment on race day, but you can respond to it and educate and inform during the actual competition. I'll give a concrete example here from cross country. You know, last week we had the women uh, Portland State team rehearsed kind of what we call the green wave, which is we're going out together as one big pack, you know, seven, eight, nine runners all together for the first 3K of a 6K. And just, you know, that means our uh, back of the pack runners will be a little challenged because the pace will be a little bit more stern than they're used to. But our front pack runners will also be not quite as challenged because the pace for them is not quite as uh, severe, right? But its idea is to create this collective mindset of we are a team, we're doing team cross country. So we get in the race, we run, they execute their game plan, and I'm informing them, I go, okay, ladies, this right here in front of you, this pack, this group, that's number 25, right? So we have seven, eight women here, like in essentially top 30. Then as they start to move, I go, okay, and there's a little bit of, you know, natural breaking of our pack, but not crazy amount, right? Then I'm saying, all right, hey, that person there is number 15 to this athlete. This person here is number 20. And then they start to understand, I go, hey, if you pass four people, that's five spots. That's five, you know. And so during the course of the fast finish of the race, they're informed in real time about where they are and they have a pulse versus me yelling a split. That was a five, 50 mile, blah, blah, blah. You know, like it's, we're, we're talking about the wrong thing. I go, you need to focus on passing these people. Because last time I checked in cross country, it's a team score of placing not a who had the you know, fastest collective third mile of the race. And that's not what matters, right? That collective fastest third mile of the race might be a data set that you know, resulted in the team score being what it was, but we need to focus on the actual doing of things that are tangible, that are relational to people, past five people this last mile, past 10 people this last two mile, right? Then from that, the manifestation of these times start to, um, you know, materialize. So we always got to come back to the reality that racing is a contextually a relational activity to other human beings on the track, on the road, on the cross country course. And when we remember that, you'll be surprised at what people will do. It's just like, it will shock and awe humans. You know, we can't predict it. And that's what we've been ha- seeing is like a lot of athletes who might have been not travel, not varsity last year, then stepping up and becoming that more top five type individual that's really dependable and relatable because we gave them the opportunity to, to thrive and succeed because we focused on the relational element, the team element versus you're locked in at this pace and this is the best physiological, most efficient pace for you to run throughout the race. Yeah, it, 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 and I've, I'm glad you brought that up because... It's not only what you say, but like athletes will pay attention to what you like, what you tend to value as a coach. Mm -hmm. So if all you're doing is yelling splits and emphasizing the time or what have you, that's what they're going to pay attention to. They're going to realize coach values this, right? But in, in, in some cases, like that might be worthwhile to call splits and do that. I'm not saying it's not, as you said, different competitions for different things, but what John is emphasizing here is like you get to change the incentive structure. You get to change like what your athletes see that you value. And then some competitions, you need to just do that. You need to shift the focus and say, mm-hmm. this is the forget the splits. Like this is the goal that could be you need to pass five people. That could be you need to like, let's keep this pack together through three miles like you know your job is to drag you know your fourth and fifth runner through to three miles whatever it is right that's that's shifting that incentive shifting that what matters here and i think that is so important and if you look at 
you know, the, the athletes, especially in cross country and coaches who do this well, like this is why they're ready at mm. the big meets, right? This is why, you know, this is why they're prepared. I remember, gosh, and when I was competing in college, there was always a difference when you competed against the, the John McDonald Arkansas teams, mm-hmm. right? Because they knew how to race together. They knew like how to elevate their teams when it came to the, the championship meet because he'd prepared them, um, you know, to be able to, to, to handle the, the rigors of this. And this would drive me and my teammates crazy because we'd go to chili pepper and their big meet when it was a big meet Mm -hmm. and we'd, you know, be maybe with their top guys or finish, you know, I'd, beat their second or third guy who's multi-time All-American. And then, you know, me and my my teammate Marcel and Scott, we'd go to the NCAA championship and they'd, they'd kick our ass. <laughs> and, it, <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it wasn't a fitness thing. Like, we had the similar fitness because we'd race them at Chili Pepper. We'd race them at regionals because they were in our region. And, and then we'd race them at NCAAs. But they did a better job of preparing for the Crucible of the NCAA meet than Mm -hmm. we did at that time because they had this legendary coach who understood like the, the, the parameters and I, I, you know, ideals for, for competing and racing at that level. Yeah. It's, and that's where, again, you just, as a coach, you have to look at your athlete population. You have to look at where, what, you know, context you're coaching in. And figure out, okay, what's the win for the athletes? Whether it's a collective win in a team setting, individual wins and, you know, a more one-on-one or personal coaching setting. But always be able to say, hey, we want to work towards X. This is how long it's going to take. And it's a process of getting towards the big home run. Because that's much more sustainable in the long run than trying to get, like, always every race have, you know, some type of like always have to be winning and having a perfect record or always being on the upswing every race. Cause human beings, we forget, right? We fluctuate, we have ups, we have downs. And part of that journey and part of that process is knowing that, you know, whether you win or lose, you have to wake up the next day and do the journey again. And you also have to be okay with the fact that sometimes you give it your all, you give it your best. You put in the, like, you know, the hardest day of work or week of work you've ever done in your life. And in the short term, right, it looks like you're in the same position you were last week, last month, last year. But part of progress is being able to sustain those plateaus or those setbacks and know that it's just about showing up, showing up, showing up consistently and learning and getting a little bit outside the comfort zone, doing things a little different, that's going to help elevate you. But if you're always just looking for the trinket or the reward, every workout, every race, saying, oh, look, this is better than last time, or the splits are sexy, or the volume and the mileage is higher, and that's a bigger number, and bigger numbers are better. You know, yeah, that can, uh, you know, sustain you for a very acute period of time, but it might not be the best strategy for the long haul. And that's part of the mental toughness and peaking when it counts is understanding it's a long haul towards that pinnacle uh, race or pinnacle series of races. And we just want to set people up. So like, when it's time for it, you can just rip and roll and you're not sitting there sweating bullets. Like even when I was coaching high school here recently, like we understood, you know, you have to qualify the state through conf- or districts and then you have to be able to, you know, run however many races at state, right? Um, whether it's qualifying in the eight into the final or, you know, doing a 3K 1500 meter double. But the goal of practice, the goal of training, the goal of the season was to put young men and women in a position to where we could enjoy the last three weeks of the season because they were in peak physical form, but also peak mental form. And part of that came with racing and trying things and getting outside the comfort zone. You know, 3K runners run open 400s, running, you know, 800s in a certain way. So that they had the skill set and familiarity of like, yeah, I've done this before when the lights are on and it's official, but now I can do it here in my main event. And you know, not have any hesitation or worry about it because I've already done it, not only in practice, but also in rehearsal races. So it's a big, big, big task. You have to, again, as a coach, zoom out and think, 
longitudinally a little bit. But if you do, man, I tell you, you're going to help develop a lot of resilient athletes that then translates into resilient human beings that can then fend for themselves and do well in life. Yeah, I absolutely love how you you sum that up there because it it really is. And what I would encourage is practical takeaways is for coaches, instead of just thinking about like, what's the physiological goal? What's the, you know, what's the goal, you know, from a a time standpoint is think of how am I preparing, as you put it, preparing athletes mentally to reach their mental peak Mm -hmm. at the same time as their physical peak. We're often really good at periodizing to reach our physical peak at the right time, but we don't we seldom take the time to say, how am I getting ready mentally to reach that peak? Meaning, have I done all the things in the dress rehearsal to prepare for the different, you know, the crucibles all face? Have I done everything in terms of practice and dress rehearsal competitions to give athletes the skills to be able to, to uh, handle the big meet, the big championship? competition the championship and if you think of things as mentally peaking as well i think that's a game changer john yeah it's not an easy task either right it requires us as coaches to take ownership that we are always learning always getting better i mean that's the whole idea of the clubhouse and scholar program and joining that and being a member of it is because it's an infinite game and you know constantly people are coming up with better strategies new strategies more informed strategies to solve these problems because they always express a little bit differently for different contexts, individuals, teams, and groups. And collectively, right, we can put our thinking caps on and support each other in that journey as we see multiple times on the daily in the clubhouse, right? Just coaches saying, hey, I got this problem. What do we think? And, you know, it's just resourcing the collective brain trust to create troubleshooting ideas that then can help inform our decision-making where it's like, oh, I didn't think about that, you know, perspective about maybe how to approach this. And that's really, you know, why continuing education is so important in the coaching arena um, for so many reasons, because the better we get as coaches, the better our athletes will get. Absolutely. So, you know, check out the Scholar Program and thanks so much for listening <laughs> and best of luck coaching. And we'll just keep keep these coming and uh, you keep the feedback coming. So thanks, everybody, and take care.